begin by going before the God. <clears throat> Lord, we acknowledge your supremacy over history and over all things. We know that even when chaos consumes the world, your kingdom is still going forward. So just as it went forward in the dark ages, so too is it going forward now. So help us to understand better what we are to do now by looking at what those who have gone before us have done when the world fell down around them. We ask all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay. So, <clears throat> this week we are moving into the Middle Ages uh, in a big way. And... It's really, really hard in the Middle Ages to talk about the church without talking about the political realities of the world that it was in, because ultimately they're going to become entwined so much so that they are inseparable. So, and part of my desire for this class is to not just talk about theology, even though that is absolutely important, but to help us understand how we got from there to here. And a lot of that, how we got from there to here, especially when you get into the Middle Ages, does take on a political nature. And so today we'll have a little more politics than we normally do. Uh, we'll still talk about theology and things like that. So, what I want to begin with, and I am sorry, the notes are really dense this morning. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff in there, so I'm probably not going to cover every point on there. You can go back and, and read later. Um, but for the first 15 minutes of class or so, I want to sort of trace the, the political realities of the West that they faced after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And, and that is going to, in many ways, shape the church in what lies ahead. Um, and it, it'll also just give us some clarity in how the world came to be the way it is now, because a lot of the countries that we uh, know today are going to be born out of this chaos. Uh, not exactly something to do with the church, per se, but it's still helpful. So that being said... Um, let's, let's dive in. And uh, first, I just want to point out, you have two maps in the back of your notes. This first map that you're looking at up here is not one of those two. So I didn't want to add a third page with just one map on it. So I apologize for that. But we'll be off this one fairly quickly, and the other two are the more important ones. So here you have the Rhine and Danube rivers, which were the boundaries of the Western Roman Empire. And they are going to be overrun by barbarians, German tribes for the most part. And they are going to come down and they are going to settle into the kingdom uh, and set, establish kingdoms in the Western Roman Empire. So the primary players are going to be the Visigoths, the Vandals, I don't know if you can see the, the laser there pointing it out, Visigoths in Spain, Vandals in North Africa, 
the Franks, these little green guys up here, you watch them because they're going to become important in just a moment. And you had a kingdom called the kingdom of Odoacer, which is going to go away pretty quickly here. You'll note the eastern half of the Roman Empire is still extant. So within a few years, can you go to the next slide now? That's going to change. You're still going to have the Vandals in North Africa. The Visigoths have been reduced to Spain alone. The Ostrogoths are going to take over Italy and part of the Balkans. And the Franks are this green group right here. Just sound by the sound of the name and looking at the map, what country is going to come from the Franks? France. So here we go. Um, now, there's a few things to remember about these groups. The Franks are pagans. They, are, they were never Christianized. They were never converted. The Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals are all Arian Christians. So what is Arianism again? It's the belief that Christ is not God. He is the he is created by the Father and through whom all other things were created, but as Arius himself liked to say, there once was a time when Christ was not. So, this is now the reality is by the sword, Arianism is being spread all through these territories where once it had never existed. So you have an Arian barbarian aristocracy now being superimposed on a Nicene Roman peasantry. And what it's going to be reduced to is a, is a peasantry. Um, and so it's going to cause a lot of tensions. And the Christians in the West, in many cases, are going to look to the East and say, help us out. And that's eventually going to happen. And the, Roman, uh, the, the Eastern Roman Emperor, who the Eastern Roman Empire we often call the Byzantine Empire, because the Greek name for the city of Constantinople, which was its capital, before it was Constantinople, was called Byzantium. That was the Greek it was an ancient Greek colony, ancient Greek city that was founded about 600 B.C. And Constantine is going to take that old Greek city and make it his new capital, and it'll be renamed Constantinople. So we take that old Greek name, Byzantium, and we just give it to the Eastern Roman Empire because it's going to persist for a thousand years through the Middle Ages. And so instead of just keep calling it the Eastern Roman Empire, historians now call it the Byzantine Empire. And it will remain strong for many, many, many centuries. And I'll just note, while, since I'm talking about it now, it is going to be the bulwark, the ramparts, upon which Christianity itself will man the walls against the, the soon coming tide of Islam. So it will be by the blood and valor of the Eastern Christians of the Byzantine Empire that will keep Islam from spreading across Europe and taking over all of Christian, all the lands that are where Christians occupy. So it's good not to forget about them. They, they do play a very, very important role in the history of the church. Um, 
Anyway, the Eastern Roman Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, is going to send his army west, and he is going to reconquer Italy and North Africa and even parts of southern Spain. So for a brief time, it looks like the Mediterranean Mediterranean Sea is becoming a Roman lake once again. And there's a lot of interesting things that come out of this. Uh, Just on a side note, um, one of the many things, he's called Justinian the Great for a reason. He does a lot of important things. But one of them is he is going to codify the previous 800 years of Roman law. And he creates what's called the Justinian Code. And he is going to send this new code west to these newly reconquered territories in Italy and North Africa and to give it a trial run before he implements it into the rest of the empire. And uh, eventually the Justinian Code is going to, when chaos erupts, which we're about to talk about in just a moment, that code is going to kind of just be shelved in the, a library. And not until the Renaissance, it's going to be rediscovered. And they're going to say, hey, this is a really good legal system. And it'll be instituted first in the Italian city of Bologna, and then all the other cities in North Italy, and pretty soon all across Europe. And it's going to form the basis of continental European law that is still in existence today. So if you go to, you know, to France or to Germany, you are not presumed innocent until proven guilty. You are presumed guilty until you prove your own innocence. Whereas in America, we follow English law. You are, the government is legally required to assume you are innocent until the government can prove your guilt. You see, it's reversed. But that difference between English and continental law comes from Justinian's code, and that may not put its best foot forward in terms of, you know, like the assumption of innocence and guilt, but it actually was a pretty efficient legal system. I am way off track. This is what's wrong with talking about the Middle Ages. It's like it, everything just, there's so many whiskers that you can follow. It's, it's crazy. Anyway, um, more to the point. Uh... Let me get back on track. So, a few, about a decade after this area is reconquered, a new barbarian tribe coming from over here called the Lombards are going to move in. And they are going to settle in Italy. And they too are Aryans. So, once again, you have Aryanism being imposed where once it was not. And they are going to find Italy devastated and a ghost, almost a ghost peninsula in a way, because the war to expel the Goths took a heavy toll on the entire peninsula. The economy is in shambles. A plague has broken out, so about a third of the population has died. So they're not going to have any trouble just moving in. And, but they're not going to take over the whole peninsula, they're going to take over the northern part and the central part right here, the bottom of the the boot, and the the center of the peninsula are going to remain in the hands of the east. 
And that central part, not the boot, but the central part is going to form the, the basis for what we call the papal state. So if you've ever heard of the, the papal states or, or, you know, you've seen movies. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that movie, The Agony and the Ecstasy. It had Charlton Heston where he was playing Michelangelo in the Renaissance. And it uh, opens up where you see two armies fighting in a field. And then one of the armies beats the other. And the general who's in his full armor rides his horse through the battlefield, cutting down his enemies as he goes, and then rides into the center of this town where he gets off of his horse, the town they just conquered. He gets off his horse and pulls off his helmet, and there's two guys that put his papal cloak and his papal hat and staff in his hand, and he celebrates Mass after just cutting down these guys in the battlefield. The popes are going to function as temporal secular leaders. We're going to talk about the popes in a minute, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But the king, the lands that he is the king of are what we call the papal states. And those are the, that, that territory in central Italy that the Eastern Empire is going to maintain control of. But eventually they're just going to let it slip away and the popes are going to be asserting themselves as the, uh, as the real rulers of that territory. Um... One of the things that's going to justify this rule is what we call the donation of Constantine. And that was a document that they, the church, is going to offer forward saying that Constantine, upon his conquest of, of Italy against his rival emperor Maxentius, met the pope in Rome and said, Pope, I give you Rome. You are now the rightful ruler of the city of Rome. And it's going to be in the Renaissance that this document is going to be shown to be a forgery because the style of Latin that it was written in was nowhere near in existence during Constantine's time. So it was proven centuries and centuries and centuries ago that this document was a forgery. But it was used as the basis upon which the, the bishop of Rome is going to justify his secular temporal rule of these lands. So it's, a, it's an important stepping stone in the elevation of the papacy. Um, <clears throat> ultimately, all of these territories, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, the North Africa, Spain, they're all going to fall to the Muslims within a century and a half. So as far as the area where the, the church is strong and the church is free to spread the gospel, it's going to be these areas to the north, the Eastern Empire and the rest of Western Europe except for Spain. But... In Spain, the church is going to be so deeply rooted that Islam will never be able to stamp it out. In other Christian areas where Islam takes over Egypt, Syria, they're never going to stamp out Christianity, but they are going to curtail it significantly. So it, uh, <clears throat> in Spain, though, 
the church is going to remain a, a rallying point that eventually will lead to the expulsion of Islam from the Iberian Peninsula. Incidentally, does anyone know when the last Islamic kingdom was kicked out of Spain? I mean, we don't think of Spain as being an Islamic heartland, but it was. The last Muslim kingdom in Spain was conquered in 1492 by Isabella and Ferdinand, the same year they sent Columbus to the New World. So that's how long it's going to take to, to uh, expel. Incidentally, that kingdom was called Grenada, which is what our little town up to the north in the valley is named after. So, okay, so moving on. Uh, so I want to talk about changes now, having kind of set the stage for what is going on politically. I want to talk about how this has affected the church. And it's going to affect the church in a variety of ways, and most of them not for the better, but not everything. So the first thing, which I've already mentioned, was the onset of Arianism. Now, the West has the Nicene Creed, and they have the Chalcedonian Creed, and these are the, the statements of faith of the church, where they have taken all of their study of scripture and collected it into a cohesive formulation of what the church believes. But the Arians, the, the barbarians, it's only irony that those words rhyme. There's nothing actually connecting them. Um, Arius comes from the name Arius, the Arians. Barbarian comes from the Greek word where they thought that they, the, the non-Greeks uh, spoke gibberish and they you know you know we have the word babel they thought they said like bar 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 that was what they sounded like and so that's where the bird barbarian comes from they sounded unintelligible to the greeks so uh so the east had been dealing with arianism for a couple of centuries and had largely stamped it out, but now the West, for the first time, is really forced to deal with this theological heresy in, on a large scale. And so they are going to take what, you know, how the East succeeded and take the creed, and they're going to really emphasize that. And they're going to zealously affirm the deity of Christ. And Ultimately, what that's going to lead them to do is modify the Nicene Creed. And this is what we call the filioque controversy. And filioque is just Latin for and the son. So filius is son and que, Q-U-E, means and. So what they were saying was the way, one of the ways that they argued for the, the deity, in defense of the deity of Christ was that they said that the Holy Spirit proceeds, in the creed it says, proceeds from the Father. This is at the final part of the Nicene Creed. And they are going to add to the creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from pater filioque, from the Father and the Son. So they're going to be arguing that the Holy Spirit, the Son proceeds from the Father, 
He is eternally begotten of the Father. He is proceeding from the Father. And there's a lot of theological nuance that goes into the word proceed. We don't have time to get into, but it's a very interesting study. So the the doctrine of procession. But then they are going to go a step further and say that the Holy Spirit proceeds not just from the Father, but also from the Son. And they're going to look to things like in the Gospels where Christ says that, you know, one will be sent after him. Like, you know, that by in making these statements, Christ is, is sending the Spirit. And they're going to amplify that and say that that's also a sign of the procession of the Spirit. So that the source of the Holy Spirit eternally is both Father and Son. I don't think that that's the case. I mean, the church is pretty roundly proclaimed that that's not the case but the the zeal of of defending the deity of Christ against Arianism caused some in the church to go into error and you'll note when I included the Nicene Creed in the in the notes I did not have the filioque clause in it so you can go back in the notes from last week and look and you will note that it does not say who proceed we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son so that was left out intentionally. Yes, question. Is the question specifically related to, qu- the procession specifically related to Pentecost? No. I mean, well, I mean, yes, in a way, in the sense that that was the coming of the Spirit who was being sent. But the question isn't, the question is not who sent the Spirit at Pentecost or into the church. The question is more ontological in that, even before creation, this was the Holy Spirit proceeding, the eternally existing Spirit proceeding from the eternally existing Son and the eternally existing Father, or just from the Father, even before all of creation, before the church, and so on. Well, I'm not even, I'm talking about before Genesis 1-1. I'm talking about John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Well, the Spirit was, you know, John doesn't testify to the Spirit in John 1. Uh, in, you know, it, it's the, you know, there was, there's God in the Word, but the Spirit is also present there as well. And there's, but the Father is eternally begetting the Son. So Christ, you know, when we see, when we see the statement that, his only begotten Son, His only, you know, this eternal, we, we talk about, well, what does that mean? And there is, the, the Father is the source. I mean, the, so in, within the Trinity, each of the persons of, of God, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, they each have their, their attributes that the other does not have, but they are all one, so, for example, the Father is eternally the source. The Son is eternally in submission to the Father and eternally functioning as his, you know, his, the perfect image of the Father. He is the Father's ex- eternal expression. So, I'm probably in my nervousness like going into heresy by picking the wrong word. So, please forgive me if you go back and really dissect this. Uh, so, <clears throat> any heretical statement is unintentional because I'm just picking words on the fly here. 
Um, but language matters. So, uh, so the argument is that the Spirit is the source of the Holy Spirit is both the Father and the Son. And theologically, I mean, what Scripture reveals, I think it's a lot safer to say that the, the, that the Spirit is eternally flowing from the Father. So, but this filioque clause is, is a pendulum swinging a little too far, and it's going to have significant uh, ramifications further down the road, uh, which I'll talk about next week, when the Eastern and Western churches are finally going to split permanently. And that's in the year 1054. We're not there yet, but this, the arbitrary alteration of the creed is going to become a major point because this is not, the creed was the product of all the churches getting together and agreeing on one statement. And here now you have half the churches saying, I think we're going to tweak this. And that's not okay. Like, not everybody signed on to that. So, that's the only significant challenge, not even challenge, that's the only significant uh, alteration, that's the only alteration, I should say, to the creed that's ever been made. And most people don't accept that alteration to the creed now. There's still some in the Catholic Church that do. So, uh, <clears throat> but it's a significant issue. Uh, the Arian issue is going to be resolved, though, in a way perhaps unexpected, and that is the Frankish king, Clovis I. Okay, now, so what country do we see coming from the Franks? France, okay. What are most French kings named? What? Yeah, Louis. So Clovis is just the Latin form of Louis. So when you see, you know, Louis the Fifteenth, the Sun King, you know, in, in Three Musketeers and all that kind of stuff, well, he's the Fifteenth. Well, who's the first? Well, this is the first. It's Clovis is what he's called. Um, <clears throat> Clovis is going to convert from paganism to Nicene Christianity. And he is going to be hailed as a new Constantine because he is, he is ushering in a new uh, era of the church because now all of the Franks are going to follow suit and they are all going to convert. They're not converting to Arianism. They are converting to Nicene, the Nicene church. And it's going to establish a strong relationship between the Franks and the church in Rome. So that, that is a, a watershed event. And it's going to be followed by the conversions of the Visigoths, the, the king of the Visigoths in 589. It was 496, I think, was when Clovis converted. In 589, the Visigoth king will convert and all the Visigoths following him will do so. In 662, Grimoald will convert, and uh, the, uh, the Lombards will follow him. And I didn't put it in the notes, but the king of the Vandals will also convert as well. So eventually, through patience and theological argument and 
and just the, uh, the missionary zeal, although these aren't official missions of the church, they are ultimately going to lead all these pagan or Aryan tribes to accept the faith. So that's going to have <clears throat> a huge impact on what follows because now all of this territory is now united, not politically, but religiously. And they are all united in following one church. Well, who's going to lead that church? What? The Pope. So let's talk about the papacy. And boy, this is fun. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> in some ways, I think a lot of the early popes get an unfair treatment from those of us in the Protestant tradition because they are claimed by the Catholic Church as being popes, when in reality they were really just the leaders of the church in Rome itself. I mean, they, the Catholic Church, who was the first pope, according to the Catholic Church? Peter. So are we going to just reject Peter because he was a pope? A pope? No. And I don't think there's a lot of these early leaders of the church, we, we, re, we, we, we reject to our own poverty because they did important things. For example, uh, Pope Leo I talked about last week, he, he not only uh, turned back Attila the Hun with just his wise words and presence, but more significantly, it was Pope Leo, or Leo, the Bishop of Rome, who defended the hypostatic union in the face of heretical movements within the church. And, full, and he was the leader that stood firm and articulated the doctrine that Christ is fully God and fully man. And, and, and his position as the leader of the church in Rome gave his words weight and value and people listened to him. Now, why would the leader of the church in Rome have weight and value? <clears throat> in Roman times, there were five great churches throughout the empire. And these were kind of the, the home churches from which all other churches were established. I mean, can you think, what would you think some of them would be? Yeah, I mean, these are the churches where Paul was sent out from, you know, where Barnabas was sent out from. And so the, the, the initial missionary journeys in the New Testament, except for Constantinople, all are going to in some way be related to these cities. Uh, Constantinople is going to come later on. It's the capital of the empire, and Constantine uh, styled himself as the 13th apostle sometimes. Um, so it had some uh, apostolic value. They did say Andrew spent the night there once. Um, so anyway, I get off track. Um, so yeah, these, these five churches were like the mother churches of the church throughout the Roman Empire. And obviously Jerusalem being the, 
the epicenter of all of that. But what do you notice about the location of them? They're all in the east except for Rome. So when the empire splits and then the west falls, Rome is left as the only significant uh, center of the church in the west. And so it was a natural disposition of that church and for the leader of that church, the Bishop of Rome, to take on a, a leadership role in the West. Because a lot of the cities that had been important, that had important churches like Aquileia and Milan were in ruins. Whereas Rome may have been uh, suffered some depredations and was not in good shape. It was still in better shape than a lot of the other major cities. And so the Bishop of Rome is going to be looked to <clears throat> as the leader of the church in the West. And it's just, in, and following the example of Leo and others, as the political reality deteriorates and chaos ensues, and now where you have one empire, you now have all these barbarian kingdoms, who does the church look to for leadership? And they're going to look to the leader of the church in Rome. Also important is after the reconquest of Italy, Rome is going to remain in the hands of the Eastern Empire. So when all the other Aryan and pagan kingdoms had been established, Rome was still in the hands of Nicene Christians. And so it was undiluted by uh, the assaults of Arianism. It was, it was insulated. <clears throat> and so it, it is going to just naturally grow into this position. And the first pope that we can look to as like a real pope in the sense that we think of them now, and ironically, John Calvin said he was the last good pope is who we call Gregory the Great. And Gregory was pope from 590 to 604. <clears throat> and he came from a monastic background, which we'll talk about next. And he never wanted to be pope. He was kind of forced into that position. But once he was in it, he, he took it gracefully and he continued to lead the church uh, in a very powerful way. And he... His impact is still felt throughout uh, the world. I mean, you could say throughout Christianity. What were some of the things he did? Well, he, he codified the liturgy of the church to make sure that it was biblical. He wanted to keep barbarian rites and things like that from creeping into the church. And that's also in, in, in making the, the way they did church uniform, so everybody knew what was right and what was wrong, he added his own touches to things. For example, what we call Gregorian chant. That came from Gregory and his monastic background. He liked to sing, and he wanted to add that to all of the church services. Prior to that, singing was not a normal part of church liturgies. So Gregory left his stamp on that as well. He was a powerful advocate for the resurrection. He 
there was going around at that time was some uh, heretical views that were like a resurfacing of old docetic views where people said that when Christ was resurrected and when we will be resurrected, that it will be in spirit only. And part of that, it was people looking at the world and how fallen it was from the heights of what it had been just a century or so before, a couple centuries before, and say, this is such crap, you know, the resurrection can't happen in this filth. And, and Gregory says, no, this is, it, is, it is a full bodily resurrection. Christ himself rose with a, you know, his body. He was not a, a ghost or an apparition walking around after the resurrection. So he, he stood firm and kept the church focused on, you know, the bodily resurrection of Christ. But also incredibly important that w- of what he did was he was the one who initiated the great medieval missionary journeys. So there was much of Europe that, excuse me, was now was pagan that had never been Christianized or had been taken over by pagans who had never been Christianized. And Gregory had a heart. He never went there. He never set foot there, but he had a heart for England. So while he's pope in, in these dark ages, this far-off land that hadn't been Roman for 200 years, for whatever reason, God stirred in his heart a passion for England, and he sent out missionaries to England to preach the gospel. And so there's two, two uh, missionaries, Augustine of Canterbury and Paulinus of York in particular, who had a profound impact on spreading the gospel on that island. And ultimately... Other missionaries, like St. Patrick in Ireland, are going to come out of this activity. So, Gregory is, you know, the fact that Ireland is a Christian island, the fact that England was, I mean, well, we all know the state of the church now, but that's not what my point is. I mean, the fact that the gospel was spread there and embraced there in England and so on, that's all the result of Gregory responding to the Spirit of God in his heart and recognizing that these people need the gospel. I mean, and I'm telling you, England was as far away from Rome as Afghanistan is from us here today. I mean, in that collapsing world, that was a long ways away, but he had that passion in his heart, and he took action, and, and he sent these missionaries there. And other leaders of the church and other uh, not popes, I mean some popes, but other important leaders in the church are going to follow suit in the centuries to come, and there are going to be several important missionary journeys spreading the gospel into new areas, uh, as we'll see later. So, um, <clears throat> so Gregory is an important transitional figure in the history of the papacy. So he is and as Calvin said, the last good pope. And after this, the popes are going to become more entwined with political affairs 
and the popes are going to become increasingly corrupt. That's not an overnight transition, but let's see how low it goes, because it's not pretty. Uh, there's going to be a period after Gregory where the East will dominate the bishops of Rome, the popes. And then the Franks will step in as the Eastern Empire has its problems and their control in Italy slips away. The Franks are going to step in and they are going to form a tight relationship with the church that's going to culminate, and we'll talk about this event in a little bit, with the Pope crowning the king of the Franks. We know him as Charlemagne. He was known back then as Carolus, but crowns him not just king of the Franks, which he already is, but emperor of the Romans, and in effect is reestablishing the Roman Empire in the West. And this was a major event that we'll come back to in a minute. <clears throat> After the Frankish uh, relationship with the popes are going to fade away, though, after about 870, the year 870, the papacy is going to come to be known or dominated by the leading families of Italy, or especially around Rome. And <clears throat> the nice name for this time period is the Siculum Obscurum, which is Latin for the Dark Age, but it is more commonly known, this, t this era of the papacy is known as the Pornocracy. Porne is the Greek word for prostitute. So, rule, this literally Greek means ruled by prostitutes. And the popes are going to have descended so low by this point that they are unrecognizable for the missionary zeal that Gregory had. And so over the 300 years, 400 years between Gregory and this time period, uh, the dignity of the Bishop of Rome will have evaporated. And they are going... Does somebody need to hold the door open in the back there? Um, they are going to... During, during this time, the... The popes are going to be uh, housing their mistresses, fathering illegitimate children with them, murdered by their mistresses, and so on. I won't go into the gory details because they're gory and they're ugly, and, uh, but you, you get the idea that this is where things are headed. And it's going to be a long time before the dignity of the, the bishops of Rome will be recovered. And when I say dignity, I mean their dignity, not necessarily their theology. So, but to me, and I, this isn't a, a bash the, the church scree, but part of the, the basis for their authority is the apostolic succession. I mean, they claim to have received their authority from Peter and that it's been passed on ever since, but I don't, even if you could say that that was maintained up through Gregory and beyond him, I don't know how it survives this, this dark time. And I'm leaving out the details on purpose because I can't say them from a pulpit. Um, so, <clears throat> this corruption of the church, though, is going to be mirrored by a growing devotion to monastic life. And that's one of the other great movements of the church that is going on at this time. 
as the political and economic systems are collapsing. Actually, can you guys go to the next slide? I meant to have you switch. This right here is, is, is Charlemagne's empire when he is crowned king in Rome, or emperor in Rome, I should say. So you can see a lot of the old Western empire has now been put back together, minus Spain, North Africa, and England. Charlemagne is able to put it all back together. And he, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, it was time to change the map, though. Uh, so as the political and economic systems are collapsing around Europe, uh, <clears throat> people are going to become disconnected. They are going to be literal refugees. They are going to be poverty-stricken. All of the, the tropes that we think of, of you know, the Middle Ages. And, and one of the solutions that they're going to find for that is monastic life. And they are going to gather together away from it all, wherever that is. And they are going to live in Christian communities where they are devoted to surviving and devoted to prayer and devoted to the study of the Word of God and, and to the, you know, the, as far as they recognize them then, the spiritual disciplines. And... There was a few differences. Monasticism was not something new to the church. I mean, the East had had monks or ascetics for a long time. I mean, there was a famous group called the Stylites in the East where they would climb on top of, you know, you think of like a Roman column. They would climb on top of the column and live on the top, sitting there praying and contemplating their entire lives. Some men spent almost 50 years up there, and people would call up, buckets of food and water to them and all the waste down for them. Um, so, you know, this kind of monastic life was very common in the East, but it was generally, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Solitude. I mean, they were alone. They weren't living in communities. And uh, in the West, monastic life is generally going to be oriented in towards a communal style of living, which will have important ramifications. Also equally important is the church, in, because of the political chaos that's going on, the church is never going to, not never, generally not going to exert its influence over the monastic communities. And so it's going to be free of the hierarchy and they're able to pursue their own ends independently and their own ends are going to be revolutionized by Benedict <clears throat> who is going to come along and again have a profound and lasting impact not just on on monastic life in general but on the church in general and Benedict uh <clears throat> He is going to formulate what is called the Rule of St. Benedict, which is still used very commonly to this day. And that, that rule was considered, I mean, in some ways it might seem harsh to us today, but it was considered a middle road back then where people uh, were able to positively temper their zeal for God away from 
like self-harm and things like that and focus it on productive things. And the, the rule regulated the order of their lives. It regulated how they prayed and when they prayed, and it created a structure to life that had all but disappeared in the political chaos as the, over the succession of these barbarian kingdoms. Uh, <clears throat> one of his, his phrases he really believed in was ora et labora, which means prayer and work. So you, you lived your life in prayer and you channeled it in work. Not works for salvation, but actual physical labor. So you had food to eat or, and this is going to become an important part of monastic life, the production of Bibles. So it's in these monasteries where the Bibles are going to be hand-copied over the years so that, I mean, and when I say over the years, I mean it takes a year or two to produce one Bible by one copyist. So, but these, these monastic communities are going to become, in effect, publishing houses. And that, that, that cheapens what they do, I guess. And I don't mean it to sound in a negative way, but they're going to become sources of access to the Word of God. Let's put it that way. And not just Bibles, but they are also going to copy the writings of the Greeks and the Romans and the church leaders from those time periods. So as the cities are burning and the libraries are burning and all of the knowledge of the world is being lost, it's being copied and protected and maintained in the monasteries. Our Bibles we have here in church today, these Bibles are the fruit of those monks working in the monasteries. Because the Bible that everybody had back then generally was the Latin Bible of Jerome. And in the Reformation, the, the church leader said, we don't want to have a copy of a copy. We want the Word of God as it was originally written. And so they had to go back and they had to sift through the monasteries looking for copies of the Greek manuscripts of the Bible. And what we have now, whether it's the, the King James, the ESV, the CSB, the NIV, the NASB, so on, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that is the fruit of that labor. We are not using an English translation of Jerome's Latin Bible. We have an English translation of the Greek Bible as it was written by the men who wrote it. And it was the monks in this time period who preserved that for us. So it, it, they didn't know how they were going to impact our lives now. But every time you read the Bible, you're reading the fruit of their labor. So... Just something to keep in mind. Um, <clears throat> I only have a few minutes left, so let's go to the last page. Uh, I mentioned Constantine. I will briefly mention that in the midst of all of this upheaval, the upheaval was multiplied exponentially by the onset of Islam. People like to say that Jews, Christians, 
and Muslims all worship the same God. Is that true? No. What, what's the difference? I mean, aside from who their prophets are, what's the difference? Sure, there's still, yeah, like in the Kaaba, there's, there's, st- or there's still some pagan worship. The idols and the, yeah. yeah. Uh, there may be some of that, but the heart of the difference is they worship a monad, a radical monad, a, a oneness without any diversity. So they are anti-Trinitarian. So they... They worship a very different God than we do. The, the fact that, that God is triune uh, means love. Is, when, it, when John says God is love, I mean, what does that mean? Well, part of what that means, uh, maybe all of what that means, is that God exists in an eternal and satisfying loving relationship within himself between father son and spirit and that love spills out from him into the lives of his creation and and even creation itself was caused by that and the oneness of Allah the monad is so radical that there is no love like that to share. I mean, there's a lot of important reasons, but I think that's an important. I mean, there's a lot of differences, but that's that's a very practical one. So I, I would rather live secure in the knowledge that God is love and loves me rather than in fear that I will be snuffed out of existence, which is the best a Muslim could hope for. So... But through all of this, through all of the corruption, that as the, the church became a secular authority and not just a spiritual authority, through it all, there were still those who maintained the truth of the gospel. And as I've said before at the beginning of this class, each of us here today as a believer is here because the person that led us to the Lord and led them to the Lord, and so on, etc., etc. There was a believer at this time period who was true to the gospel that shared that gospel with somebody that led to us. Does that make sense? So, through all of that corruption, there is still good teaching, good preaching. The gospel is still going forward. And one of the people who articulated the gospel well in this time period Somebody who the reformers are going to look to and say, see, this is what the church has always said and what the, the later Catholic church is going to move away from. And that is Anselm of Canterbury. And he's at the end of the Dark Ages. And next week we're going to talk about the High Middle Ages. And so Anselm is a, is a transitional figure. He's, he, he's the often considered the founder of what we call the scholastics, and we'll talk about them next week. But I just wanted to end with a couple of quotes from Anselm to show you that there are still people preaching the gospel in this dark age. So, 
uh, <coughs> and I typed these out really fast, so I may have mistyped one. So, he says, <coughs> and he's saying this in response to the works that he sees, the, the increased uh, simony. The, simony is like the selling of church offices and the selling of indulgences and, and things like that. So he's seeing the, 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 the heresy of works creeping into the church. And so he says, what indeed can be, be conceived of more mercifully than that God the Father should say to a sinner, condemned to eternal torments and lacking any, redeem, any means of redeeming himself, Take my only begotten Son, and give him on your behalf, and that the Son himself should say, Take me, and redeem yourself. For it is something for this sort that they say when they, all, when they call us and draw us towards the Christian faith. It doesn't mean redeem yourself like you're doing all the work. It's saying take the work of Christ and be redeemed. He further says, Look, O Lord, upon the face of your anointed, who became obedient to you even unto death, and let not the scars of his wounds be hidden from your eyes forever, that you may remember how great a satisfaction for our sins you have received from him. Would, O Lord, that you would put in the balance the sins by which we have deserved your wrath and the sufferings which your innocent Son endured for us. Truly, O Lord, his sufferings will appear heavier and more worthy then <clears throat> that through them you should pour out your mercies upon us and then our sins and that through them you should restrain your compassion in anger. So even in the middle of these dark ages, even in the midst of the church being led by the pornocracy, there were men and women who were true to the gospel, who were true to <clears throat> the teaching of the apostles. And that through them, ultimately, there will be a new generation of people, or many generations separated from them, who will embrace that fully in the Reformation. And that will ultimately lead to our church here in Mount Shasta. But that's a brief look at the changes going on in the church during the dark ages and it was a dark time but there was the light of the gospel was still going out even in the midst of that so it's important to remember that you know as times feel dark now a they're not as bad as they were back then i promise and b as dark as they may, may be the light of the gospel will still go forward so any questions yes So, yeah, who, as far as Muslims, Jews, Christians worshiping the same God, and who is Jesus? Uh, <clears throat> well, obviously the Jews do not accept him as Messiah, so that's an important difference. The Muslims actually revere all the Jewish prophets and Jesus, who they consider to be the greatest prophet other than Muhammad, Muhammad being the greatest do they accept him as the son of God? Absolutely not. That is heresy to the Muslims. That is the difference. So it is a gross and I think unfair 
mischaracterization of others to say that Christians worship the same God as Jews and Muslims. I think that is said in absolute rejection of, of the, the knowledge of the Trinity. So if they said that in the knowledge of the Trinity, you can't make that statement because our God is, is different. I couldn't hear that, I'm sorry. Absolutely, that, that's not even an issue as far as they're concerned. So, any other questions? Yes. Absolutely, the Trinity is rife through the Old Testament. I'll just give you one easy, brief example. Who is present at creation? God, the Spirit, the Father, the Spirit hovering over the waters of the deep. And how, how then is creation achieved? No, from Genesis. In the beginning, you know, in the Spirit of God is there hovering over the waters of the deep. God is present. And then he speaks things into existence. And what is speaking? It is the Word. Through whom all things are made. That's Christ. There's other, I mean, the Trinity is present throughout the Old Testament. In every single book of the Old Testament, you can find Trinity, Trinity, Trinity. Look at it this way, and I'll end on this. There isn't one verse that says this is the Trinity because God's nature is the sum total of all of his revelation. It takes all of his revelation to testify to his nature. If there was just one verse that said, this is who God is, I mean, is speaking the whole breadth of his being, then if it turned out that that particular book, I'm just saying hypothetically, was actually not canonical, you would lose that verse and therefore you would lose the testimony to who God is. But from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible testifies to the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So you can take any one of the books of the Bible out. You can take half the books of the Bible out, and you're still going to find God revealed as Trinity in every book. So it's, it's not dependent on one thing. It's not easy for us because we have to do the work to think it through and to search the Scriptures to know the truth. But it's a firm truth, and it's found in every single book of the Bible. I'll end there. Let me close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the saints who have persevered before us, who have carried your gospel through hard times. I pray that you will strengthen us, edify us, give us encouragement to continue to carry your gospel through hard times. Amen.